Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last night in uh, Sharda's beautiful talk, uh, she raised an, an issue that has always intrigued me. Um, that of how is it that some of us encounter dukkha or suffering and somehow turn in the right direction where others um, go in a different direction. When I look at my own life and see the, a number of major crossroads where I could have gone either way or some real tragedies that could have embittered me or closed me down or made me uh, too frightened to, to go looking for something. Um, it's really quite extraordinary, quite amazing. And probably all of us have similar stories we could, we could share. I wanted to share one particular story that's quite poignant and powerful um, from a book that uh, some of you who come to the the Berkeley group uh, on Thursday nights have known well. There's a book, How We Choose to Be Happy, by these uh, two fellows who are going to do a day long in December here at Spirit Rock. Uh, they, They found about 200 and 30 people or so that they that were identified through careful research as being extremely happy people uh, <laughs> and came up with uh, there were nine common choices that all of them had made it's quite it's a beautiful book um, that I've been very uh, inspired by it and uh, keep on talking about it because it keeps me happy uh, but uh, a lot of their their stories um, are of people or weaves in with the choices, the people's stories, some of these people, uh, many of them who went through really hard and tragic experiences. And this one, I think, uh, kind of sums it up as good as any. So I want to share with you a little bit of Adele's story. Adele showed showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. And this is her talking. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. (laughs) My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. Having lost everything, Adele had many intentions to establish. She explored the most fundamental of them. Would she live or die? And this is her again. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity I saw. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad, I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, 
to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to learn how to do this for my, the rest of my life. I'll just read a, a little bit more. She says, how she, a little bit of how she got through it. I started looking, let's face it, I didn't have anything left at all to look at except myself. I remember fighting the urge to shut down emotionally, but at the time my emotions seemed to be all I had. I avoided pharmaceuticals, knowing that if I suppressed my feelings, they'd reemerge later and I'd have to feel them all over again. Anyway, the fact that I could feel something meant that I was still alive. I forced myself to keep facing the pain. I cried a lot. I never withheld a single feeling. There was no way for me to know where I was without them. They were my signposts, my guides, my in- indicators. Any time I felt empty, I meditated. When I felt unsure, I called a friend to talk about it. I joined a support group for, wom- for women. I wrote unmailed letters to my mom, dad, and ex-husband. I poured my heart out to them. I wasn't just feeling emotions, I was allowing them to spill over on the written page in ways that, I, that hadn't been expressed in years, if ever. And it was during this period, she says, that something important happened. These tidal waves of intense emotions came up against the reality of my losses. As they smashed together reality and feeling, the grief began to dissolve into something more manageable. This was the point when I began to turn my attention away from what was no longer what I had lost to what could be. And then it says, where is Adele now? She has more than survived. She has flourished. With her gourmet cooking skills, she started a small catering business that's now thriving. Insurance money from the fire provided funds to build a serene treehouse overlooking a verdant canyon in the Berkeley Hills. And she's put a lot of energy into building an intimate and warm support system of friends who love her and stay with her through her life. And then she ends, I had never really considered myself a happy person before. Now I am. In the past few years, I've created a new life. I've learned to live fully, to accept life as a whole. I'm not looking for something to make me happy. I'm doing it for myself. I have a feeling that I can thrive in hard times. I feel content and tranquil. What I never had before was self-knowledge. Now I know myself. I know my limits, my emotional range, my loves, and I know I can build a life around those things. What I have now is a life that reflects the real me. Isn't that amazing? They call that choice, by the way, one of the nine choices, recasting. That is turning our suffering into a source of awakening and integrating, understanding it so we can deepen our compassion for ourselves and for others. Last night, when Sharda was talking, she, she used the word luck to point to this. And, and there is something quite mysterious about it. You know, how does that happen? You know, one could call it grace as well. You know, that, that story of Amazing Grace, how that song came to be, that slave trader who just had an epiphany and, and turned his boat around and wrote that song that's touched so many people. It is very mysterious, this notion of grace. Well, in the, in the Buddha's teachings, things aren't done by accident. There is cause and effect at work. And when we, uh, Howie and Sharda and I talked about it afterwards, we all you know, clearly said the same thing. Yeah, well, one could call it luck. From one vantage point, it looks like luck. And from another, one could say grace, or one could say this is karma unfolding. And what I wanted to talk about tonight is this process of first moving from our confusion 
facing the right direction and through practice moving towards awakening with some particular emphasis to the practice as we do it here. One aspect of the teachings as far as karma unfolding and how grace comes to us is, um, is called paramis, which is very similar to the, the word paramita, which is sometimes used in some Buddhist teachings. Paramis are really the forces of purity that are developed over time that arise and bear fruit. And there are two main kinds of paramis, the parami or purity of conduct and the purity of wisdom. That if we are living lives that have great integrity, we are sowing the seeds for um, wholesome circumstances to arise, whether in this lifetime or in future lifetimes. And that good circumstances is one result of purity of conduct, this parami, and also the opportunity to hear the Dharma, to hear the truth. That's another very powerful result. When one hears the the Dharma, whether it's Buddha Dharma or the truth in any package, and I wouldn't necessarily want to limit it to just Vipassana retreats. There's lots of packages for the truth. But when one hears the real truth that touches a place inside of us that remembers, that knows, and one can put it into practice and practice that truth, then the parami of wisdom is available. The purity of wisdom, which is that of realizing the truth, actualizing it, which culminates in liberation. So with that in mind, some people encounter suffering and become bitter or closed or fearful for whatever mysterious reason, whatever you call it. And some people use it as a springboard to greater compassion and wisdom. It is said, and probably all of us have heard this, that suffering deepens compassion. If we use it well, then our own sorrows and pains become the source that we can understand the human predicament and then be there for others who go through similar pains and sorrows. Another aspect of this teaching, I just was mentioning this in uh, this last week's group in Berkeley, is the teaching that suffering, it's one very esoteric list, that suffering gives rise to faith, and then there's a whole list of things that follow from faith, and joy and rapture and concentration and contentment and leading to awakening, that if one opens up to one's suffering with awareness and an encountering with the teaching, then there is a possibility of intention what is sometimes called right aspiration or right intention, to move in a direction of greater wholeness and understanding. And particularly what I want to focus on for the rest of this talk is how from that suffering leading to faith, which is for many of us what brings us here, the process that goes from that point on, which is... Uh, summed up as the five spiritual faculties. This is one way to understand what we're doing here and this process of awakening that might not be so obvious as we try to feel the next breath or lift the next foot mindfully, 
but is very clearly happening, unfolding. So, suffering leading to faith. The Buddha started out his teaching the Four Noble Truths with the fact that there is suffering in life. And he said, the more you can understand about suffering, the greater the possibility of the end of suffering, leading towards more happiness. And if we're fortunate enough for our paramis to be um, strong enough so that we encounter the Dharma and have the opportunity to practice as we're doing here, quite an amazing unfolding starts to happen, which begins with this spiritual faculty of faith. Faith in the teachings, the Pali word is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha, which literally means to put one's heart upon to put your heart into something and to feel a sense of uh, a wholehearted trust. The word trust is sometimes synonymous with faith in these teachings. Confidence is another uh, synonym for faith. Sometimes when people hear faith, it trips up old memories of Sunday school or, you know, oh, what are we getting here? Faith. Uh, It's not blind faith. In fact, the Buddha makes the very strong point that this faith has to be tempered with a careful investigation. And he admonished one of his disciples who was the the ultimate groupie who sat in front of him and gazed. He was so in love with the Buddha and he he actually threw him out of the order. Um, And when this guy was about to commit suicide because his beloved had turned him away, the Buddha appeared to him and said, don't you see, Vakali, you can look at this form for a hundred years and still not see the Buddha. That when you see the Dharma, that's when you see the the Buddha. And there was this turning and Vakali came back and became fully enlightened, actually, has these good stories turn out. (laughs) But it's not blind faith. It's a faith that we can have the courage to explore, to take the risk, like Sharda was saying last night, the risk of being in the present. It's not the faith that everything's going to work out just fine, you know, because I'm a good boy, or a good girl, and I'm doing my Dharma practice, and you know I'm covered. <laughs> That's not it. There's no guarantees like that. That's a kind of simplistic idea of faith. It's the faith that every moment can be met with awareness. That every moment there is a possibility of meeting a situation with wisdom and compassion and having some kind of trust that develops over time that we can meet this moment, that we won't completely collapse or crumble. Faith is the antidote to the hindrance of doubt. Many of you know that list of five hindrances of attachment and aversion and dullness and restlessness and doubt. And they're common to all of us. Doubt is universal. Even the Buddha had doubt. Just before he was enlightened, as the, the story goes of Mara coming to tempt him and confuse him because he didn't want this great awakening to happen. And after trying to frighten him or uh, dangle beautiful images to... Uh, uh, incite in his lust and you know nothing worked and the last thing that Mara said is what makes you think you have the right to sit here and become fully enlightened this is the last of you know, the last resort now what that means to me is 
as the Buddha was recounting his, um, his awakening experience, that there was a moment of doubt that arose in the mind that was uh, metaphorically put in the, the image of Mara, the embodiment of temptation and evil. And the Buddha, having had that thought, put his hand down as that, uh, that Buddha image has, this hand down, touching the earth and saying, as the, the earth is my witness to all the work that I've done over countless lifetimes, I have a right to be awakened. And that was the moment that just preceded his awakening. But doubt was there until the very end. And certainly we all know the story of, of Jesus on the, on the cross saying, why hast thou forsaken me? So you can take some comfort that you're not alone if you have some moments of doubt. It's universal. But the faith that we can contact as we practice is something quite precious that can counteract that doubt as it arises. And we get our faith from different sources. We can be inspired by somebody's example, like the Buddhas or Jesus or somebody who has turned us on to practice or that we've read something by, like the Dalai Lama or you know, whoever it was that said, hey, this is really neat. You've got to check this out. And it can be leading to tremendous sense of brightness and inspiration. One of the, the lines from the Buddha's teaching that has always been an inspiration from the first time I read it and I really took it in. It's this line that's, that he says, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. He just kind of put it right out. It's really possible. And when I heard that, okay, he seems like he knows something here, you know. <laughs> And I got very inspired. That bright faith is really wonderful. It carries us through for a while. It probably brought you to your first retreat. Do you remember what, what it was that inspired you that way? That's something very precious. And the faith, as we start to look for ourselves, also has as part of its foundation a sense of karma that this is not a random universe, that there is cause and effect. That if I practice anger, I'll be very angry. If I practice kindness, maybe I'll be kinder. If I practice being present and mindful, maybe that will develop. Because if, if this were a random universe, what would be the point? What would be the, um, the inspiration to try your best? <coughs> but there is this law of cause and effect. One other foundation or source of, of faith is seeing for yourself how everything is changing, particularly when you're stuck in a really hard place. I remember on my... Um, it was my second retreat where I had this incredible wave of doubt. It was more than a wave. It was a what, tsunami or something like that. You know, where I was, I was a phony and everybody around was a phony and we were all fooling ourselves thinking anything was happening here and the teachers didn't know what they were talking about and you know this teaching seemed kind of weird and it was really intense. And I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, I tried to walk, I couldn't walk. Finally, I went up to my little cubicle in this meditation center and there was a picture of um, Neem Karoli Baba from uh, Ram Dass's books, who was one of my main sources of inspiration and faith, looking at me you know, with a little twinkle in his eye saying, hmm, getting pretty freaked out, aren't you? you know? And in a moment, I just kind of laughed. At, uh, I saw him laugh at me, and I saw how intense I had wrung myself into this knot 
about. And I just, I laughed at the whole absurdity. And in the moment of laughing, the whole intense armoring of doubt just dissolved. And I got really excited, right? I said, wow, I had all this doubt. It's gone. I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I had conquered doubt. (laughs) You can probably sense there's a, this is not the end of the story. So uh, unfortunately, the interview was about eight hours from that moment until (laughs) I was seeing him. And I went through most every mind state imaginable from confidence and exhilaration to exhaustion to confusion to more doubt to up and down. I was just all over the map and I finally went into the interview. It was time to go in and he said, so how's it going? And I sighed in utter exasperation and innocence. It's always changing. (laughs) And he said, you got it. That's it. And I thought, well, I had heard that quite a bit before, but the, the wisdom that I didn't even know was there kind of snuck up on me or through me. Oh, yeah, it really is always changing. And that kind of understanding is the greatest source of faith when you see for yourself all of these truths that are spoken about. That is called verified faith. And no one can take that away from you. You know whatever it is, the truth that you're getting in touch with. I just might ask you for a moment to reflect, what is it that you know, either from today or these days of practice or in your life that you've seen for yourself, that you absolutely know is true? that you can put your heart upon, that you can rest your faith in. Have you seen how things change? Have you seen how holding on to changing experience is painful? Any number of things that you could see. This is the greatest source of faith, verified faith. And as the process goes, this faith, whether it's the bright faith of initial inspiration or your own verified faith or things that seem worth checking out and and you, um, through uh, rational analysis, uh, decide to put into action, whatever your source of faith, faith gives rise to the next of these faculties which is effort or energy. This practice, as you've probably seen, requires a lot of effort. It doesn't just happen that you can sit down and be present. Maybe for a moment, but to have a kind of presence that is that is rooted in us, where that becomes our reference point, takes quite a bit of commitment. It's like going upstream. If you took most people off the street and said, okay, I'd like you to sit and walk for the next two days and just be present for what's going on, they'd think you're crazy. And they might go crazy, too, in short order, if they don't understand why they would do it. But having some sense of faith or inspiration or trust, we're willing to do that. And the paradox is that although it takes a great commitment and intention to be here, what is sometimes called heroic effort. Once you're here, there's no effort that's needed. And in fact, any effort is 
one of moving out of what's here right now into a state of becoming, of wanting more. So there's this paradox where the effort... Okay, somebody wanting a quick getaway from here, I guess. (laughs) Where the effort can be strong, but when you finally are here, there's just a complete opening and relaxing which can happen at any moment. Sometimes it can happen without a whole lot of um, straining and striving. Often it, it does. But it does usually take a great intention to put in your, uh, your time. That's why it's called practice. And then once you're here, just an ease of allowing, of receiving the moment. And so effort is a very um, um, tricky or confusing uh, topic for many people who come to practice because you get all kinds of different messages. You know, practice like your hair is on fire, one great Sayadaw from the last century says. And then you hear somebody else saying, you know, simple and easy, just rest in the natural awareness. You know, it can get kind of confusing. Well, who's saying the truth? They're both the truth. They're just different sides of the same, the same reality. And the Buddha talked about effort in terms of balance of effort, of knowing, he gave the image of like tuning a string. If you tune it too tight, you don't get the right note, the string of, a, of a, an instrument. If, you, if it's too loose, you don't get the right pitch, but just the right amount of tension and you'll get the desired note. And so it's a constant kind of checking in and seeing what is needed to bring about a sense of balance, because that's what effort is about. And it's not so hard if you notice the cues to feel if your shoulders are crunching and your jaws clenching and you feel like the walls are closing in, this is a sign to just relax and lighten up. But if you're laid back and saying, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it it might be a sign to just kind of renew your commitment a little. When you come here at the beginning of a retreat, for most people, the energy is kind of low. Because we're so used to operating on outside stimulation, you come here, not much is happening. You know, lunch is the big entertainment for the day. <laughs> and it's like you know, somebody's pulled the plug. Okay, must be time to check out. But actually, as you continue on with practice, you find through this fasting from stimulation, a great resource of energy that often, that most of us don't have a clue is there. So it takes a lot of patience at the beginning. And if you found that you're nodding off, you know, the classical case of the nods, you know, mm, and you say, what's the point of this? Mysteriously enough, there is a point. And I know I've spent probably weeks, if you put it together, you know, all in my little sitting, just <laughs> sleeping in an upright position, but something comes from it. So I hope you don't get too hard on yourself for any kind of low energy that you might have had. I want to share a little bit more about effort and the way that uh, it leads to these other awakening factors. One of the problems with effort is that often people equate their effort, whether they're doing enough or uh, too much or whatever, with the results, with what it looks like. Oh, I'm really clear now. I must be putting in good effort. Or I'm really all over the map now. Or I'm lost in confusion or fear. Maybe I'm not doing it good enough. And we have all kinds of ideas about what good practice will look like. They're just ideas. That's it. They're simply ideas. Because it's impossible to tell 
the value of the process while you're in the middle of it. Sometimes you might see somebody going slowly and thinking, you know, wow, they're a great yogi. I wish I could go slowly like that. Or sometimes you might see somebody going a more natural pace and think, wow, they're just themselves. They're so unpretentious that they don't, they have no presentation at all. And I wish I could be like that. Or if you're going slowly and somebody's going fast, you say, don't they get it? You know. <laughs> or you can just be deciding to go at a natural speed and somebody's going slowly and think, who do they think they are? You know. So the mind gets caught in all these ideas just depending upon where you're at. Sometimes you might hear somebody sobbing next to you. It's quite common on retreats or going through this emotional catharsis and think, God, I must be so flat. You know, I don't, I, I'm just sitting here feeling my breath and you know, I'm not getting my money's worth. <laughs> or the person who's sobbing away might be saying, get it together enough, or will you? you know, come on, let's just be with one breath. All these are just ideas about practice. But we are often slaves to those ideas. And a lot of the ideas have to do with how we look to everybody else. It's one thing to practice on your own, but when you've got a group of 85 or 90 people to compare with, you know, this, the comparing mind runs rampant. And I, I, some people have heard me say this before. On one retreat, I was, I was going... I like to go slowly when I, when I kind of settle down in that mode. And I'll, I'd be doing walking meditation uh, on my own and just go, you know, lifting, moving, placing, really enjoying it, lifting, moving, placing. And somebody would come in where I, I know I'd be seen, you know, and, and I'd be practicing for a whole different reason. And it got to the point where I started using the mental note, Lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, <laughs> lifting, looking good. You know. It was very humbling, you know, but it was important to see. Oh, there's that too. Yeah. Effort is doesn't have to do with what the results are at any time. You can be on Mars. You can be confused. You can be just quite flat. You can be bored. You can be excited. You can be exhilarated. You can be calm. You can be anything. And it doesn't indicate whether it's good practice or not good practice. Because what's happening is completely out of your control. What's important, as is often said, is your relationship to what's happening. That's the key. And if you want to get a sense of your effort, if it's skillful or not, the place to look is not my will, I will be a macho meditator and do this right, but effort comes from the heart. It's a sincerity of heart that you bring. It's your willingness to be wholehearted about being here in this moment. And it's the sincerity of simply coming back when you realize you've been gone. That keeps it so much more simple and manageable. Lost? Ah, okay, come on back. That's the only thing you need to concern yourself with. The intention to be here as best you can, and when you see you've gone, to come back. Because the way it works is the more you make that intention to be present, the more present you become, which leads to the, the third factor of this process, that of mindfulness. The effort is simply the effort to be mindful or to be present. And with that intention, that starts to strengthen. So I'd like to talk a bit about mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply being here without 
having an idea of what should be happening without getting lost in your judgments or your reactions to what's happening. Either liking and wanting to grasp at the pleasant or disliking, wanting to push away the unpleasant or taking ownership of your experience but just seeing it is this unfolding on its own. And there's lots of different ways to be mindful. The discourse, uh, how we mentioned uh, this morning, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about, is called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And he says, there's mindfulness of the body, which includes the breath and all the physical sensations and sense stores. There's mindfulness of the flavor of experience, the feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutral, which is present in every moment. There's mindfulness of all the mental phenomena, our thoughts, our thinking process, our emotions. And then there's mindfulness of the underlying principles of reality, things like impermanence or selflessness or this process of awakening and how it works. And he said, any one of those is encompassed in the practice. It's not so much what you're paying attention to, it's the attitude of presence without judging. And it looks different at different times. Sometimes there will be a really refined kind of mindfulness where you notice the subtleties. You know, if you're feeling the breath at the nostrils, sometimes it's so exquisite you can almost feel the hair follicles swinging in the breeze, you know, as, as the air comes in and feeling just a, a, a myriad of sensations. Wow, it's fantastic. Sometimes it's all you can do to know that you're in a body sitting. But you know what? The moment that you know that you're sitting, that moment of mindfulness is just as profound and powerful as that fine microscopic awareness. One of uh, my teachers, Manindraji, who was Joseph Goldstein's uh, main teacher, he had this, this line he used to say a lot, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. Keeps it pretty simple, okay? Can you just sit and know that you're sitting? Sometimes you might want to have a a kind of refined awareness, but you have a huge emotional storm going on. And it's really hard to get a handle on on it or get some kind of way to, to hold it. Well, in that instance, when it happens to me, I use one of my all-time favorite labels for you mental noters out there. Putting the whole experience into one big package and calling it confusion. Ah, that's what's happening, confusion. And in that moment, that is a moment of mindfulness. Oh, that's what's happening, and I'm clear about it. I might be clearly confused, but I'm clear about it. And so not to get tricked into thinking that mindfulness looks any one way. All it requires is knowing what's happening without getting lost in a judgment. And whatever lens you take in your experience through whatever sense door is really the skill of and the art of meditation, knowing how to hold your experience and connect with it without getting strained or tight or lost. Just that simple connection. Mindfulness has a quality of alertness, presence, and also ease, receptivity. That's not pouncing on the experience. And it's certainly not analyzing the experience and figuring out. We often have an inclination and a quest to figure things out, to understand, and I mentioned this in one of the groups, if the 
word why creeps into your meditation, be careful. As soon as the question, why is this happening, comes, it will most likely lead you into quite a discursive analysis that has no end. Instead of asking why, just remember you don't have to figure it out and just be with what is. Because if there's too much thinking, it leads to trouble. And I'll just use that opportunity to read a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I really love, where Calvin says, here I am, happy and content, the next frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) And the third frame, so now I'm no longer content, I'm unhappy, my day is ruined. And the last frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. (laughs) Don't try to figure out or try to get anything more out of the moment than what's here right now. It makes it so much simpler that way. And the beautiful property of mindfulness is that it's a purifying force. So every single moment, and this is one of, I said this in one of my my groups, this is one of my main inspirations when I'm practicing. Every single moment of mindfulness counts. Every single moment that you're here without grasping or condemning or identifying is a moment where you're deconditioning those habits and you're sowing very powerful seeds that ripen in their own time. So, faith leads to effort. The effort to be mindful leads to mindfulness. And moments of mindfulness build to the fourth of these faculties of concentration. Concentration, which cuts through our confusion. It might not seem so obvious to you, particularly on the second day of a retreat, Um, but as you are practicing more and more, coming back in a very gentle and kind way, there is a momentum that's built up that will, if you had the time to sit a longer retreat, you'd notice, unfortunately it takes about three days for, uh, for most people, but you'd notice the fourth, fifth, and sixth day, a real kind of concentration that can see things in a way that's not normally available to us. But even on a weekend, you probably have noticed a difference than from when you came here. And maybe you've even noticed a few moments of mindfulness. At the beginning, it's all you can do to maybe notice one or two breaths in a sitting. And you might think, oh God, I'm really doing lousy at this. And maybe by now you've noticed five or ten, or maybe even a few in a row. And it might not seem like much. Well, I'm still spaced out about 95% of the time. But that's 5% more than when you got here. So you've quintupled your, your presence. And that kind of concentration over time starts to develop. Concentration relies on a few different factors. The effort to be mindful, being very patient. You can't hurry up that process, but just that simple Willingness to come back each time is your end of the deal. And being very patient, letting it unfold just the way it needs to. Keeping things very simple, like I mentioned that first night, doing one thing at a time really makes a difference. Having a quality of investigation is a very great ally to concentration. Because when you want to check things out, then they become more interesting. And instead of it being, oh, here's a breath, we just had one a moment ago, you know. (laughs) It's, if you can come into the sitting and say, wow, just imagine this is my first breath ever. Or, this, is the, this could be the last breath I'll ever take. 
Now, if you thought it was your last breath, you think you'd be there for it? Probably. Well, this breath has never come here before and will never be here again. And this moment, even more than just the breath, has never been here before and will never be here again. This moment of life. Somehow, to um, cultivate that quality of interest and investigation, it's one of the factors of enlightenment, that sees this is a precious opportunity. It's like bringing that childlike curiosity that we all have to this moment. And you don't have to worry about the ones to come. Oh, there's another 40 minutes of the sitting. I don't know if I can keep this up. Just this moment. And this moment. So that quality of investigation, just having that sense of something new. You know, when I, when I sat with this um, Burmese teacher that many people have heard of, Upandita, he would say, okay, uh, you go through your reporting every day, and uh, you'd see him every single day. And he'd say, all right, tell me what you see in your, in your breath. Go through all the things you see in your breath, and I thought I was seeing a lot. And in this one period of uh, time, in this first retreat I did with him, I reported. I thought I reported a whole lot, and he said, "Okay, tell me something new tomorrow." I thought, "New? God, I've been doing this for you know ten years, and I thought I saw a whole lot. I thought, but." You know, I was on the spot, so I figured I'd better come up with something new. Right? And I looked really carefully, and I saw new things that I'd never seen before. And I was so excited, and I went into the interview, and I said, well, there was this and this and this, and I saw this for the first time. You know, he said, okay, very good. Now tell me something new tomorrow. You know? And he did this like each day. You know, I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and it wasn't so much he was looking for any one answer, but in that careful looking, a whole world started opening up to me. So that's another great ally to investigation, that quality of interest, uh, that, uh, another great quality of concentration, interest in investigation. Another aid or ally to concentration, the real key to concentration, is continuity that there is a momentum that's built as you do this practice. And continuity is the key. The image that is given, I think how he alluded to it, is like boiling some water, boiling a tea kettle. This is very helpful when I started practicing. You put the water on the kettle uh, uh, and the kettle on the stove, if you take the kettle off every 30 seconds, you're not going to have boiled water. But if you leave it on, even if sometimes the flame is low, and sometimes it's, it's higher, that water's going to cook. And it's the same way with our practice. If we keep that continuity of awareness, there's a dramatic deepening of concentration. And so that's why how he was mentioning, when you get up from the sitting, see if you can make it a seamless dance of awareness, so that tying your shoes, or going for tea, or brushing your teeth, is just as sacred an act as sitting here in the hall, which it is. We're just arbitrarily saying, okay, now this is a meditation hall, and feel your breath. Every moment counts. And concentration isn't something that you can maintain. It has its own cycles like everything else. So you don't need to feel once you've gotten it that you've got to either keep it up or that you've lost it if it changes. There's a spiral of practice where you're, you're moving in the direction of greater and greater composure and clarity. But from sitting to sitting, it can vary tremendously. Okay, so faith leads to effort to be mindful, which leads to mindfulness. And mindfulness moments build to develop concentration. And that kind of mindful concentration, where clear awareness leads to wisdom. 
the last of these faculties. Because we're able to see more clearly, we see things that aren't normally available to us. And what do we see? Classically, we see three main liberating insights that are described by this word wisdom. There's many other insights that we see along the way, but the three ones that are the hallmark of awakening are seeing that everything changes, which you can see on many, many levels. You might have gotten that by now, but you can see it on deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper levels until it becomes the reality with which you move through the world. Seeing when you see it that deeply that everything changes, you see the second mark of existence, which is holding on to changing experience is suffering. And with that understanding, you start to figure out, oh, if holding on is suffering, maybe letting go is not suffering. And then the third liberating insight that is seen, as you see, this is all a changing process around us, you see that you too are this changing process. And that there is no solid self, no entity within you that you can point to and say, this is me, but rather seeing this illusion of self as a flow of thoughts and moods and sensations that is in constant flux. And there's no one point that you can say, this is me. How many different thoughts have you had today? Can you point to any one of them and say, oh, this is me? How many different moods? In one day, you can't point to any one and say, oh, this is me. You are a continually changing process. And in that understanding, you see there's no ownership of that process. You can't say, really, my thought when it just comes through you, or my anger, when it's just expressing itself through you. It's the life force expressing itself through you. If you had any control over things, you probably would only have wonderful, compassionate thoughts of saving the world. But you probably have a few other thoughts that creep in. completely unbidden. And that selfless quality of experience is quite liberating. There's no ownership of that. And so you see, on the one hand, you are real. This is James, this is Sharda, this is Howie, this is you. And on the other, it is just life expressing itself through you. And there's not a separation that would be um, apparent Uh, to us, that there is this interconnectedness of all of life. So this is the process of awakening through whatever brings us to the practice, whether it's suffering or, or inspiration or hearing the words there is a development of faith. And that faith leads to the effort to see for ourselves, the effort to be mindful. The moments of mindfulness are built with that effort. Mindfulness builds and develops concentration. And then we can see clearly through the illusion of things to true wisdom which is freedom. And this is the process that we're doing. And it works.
and for you to know on whatever level that you've seen that it works, use that as a source of your faith to just take the next step and meet this next moment as best you can. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on September 5, 1999. It is an offering of the 